1: This is kind of like uh, fan service, but it's Desi-service. <laughs> yes, we'll talk about it for you, Desi-doyan. Well, yeah I don't know why I came here tonight. I guess that's why I came I here. I got the feeling something
0: right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs.
1: Clowns to the left of Jokers to the right Here I am, stuck in the middle with you Here I am, here we are From Pacifica Radio In Los Angeles This is the broadcast As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California On KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN And Eureka's KGOE Up in Oregon on the Central Coast On KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso Eugene's KEPW Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palenville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFC, Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, In Seattle, on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's, WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's, AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly, investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all around swell fellow, says me from BradBlog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Okay, and I'm, you know, I am begrudgingly covering this story today, Desi Doyen. just mostly for you, as I said at the opening, as as AP covers it today, Hollywood's Captain Kirk, 90-year-old William Shatner blasted into space Wednesday in a convergence of science fiction and science reality, reaching the final frontier aboard a ship built by Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin Company, the Star Trek actor and three fellow passengers hurtled to an Uh, An altitude of 66 and a half miles over the West Texas desert in the fully automated capsule. Then they parachuted safely back to Earth. The flight lasted just over 10 minutes. So. Uh, I guess, uh, a 10-minute mission to explore strange new worlds and seek out (laughs) new life and civilizations and boldly go where a handful of very brave people...
0: And rich in some cases. Yes,
1: now a handful of really rich people have gone before. So I've wanted to mention this story halfway, wanted to mention it because on the one hand, oh, Shatner in space, that's fun. Mm -hmm. On the other hand... Jeff Bezos, who makes more money in one minute than most human beings could possibly make in, I don't know, 10 or 50 or 100 lifetimes, Uh, And then on the third hand, you're a huge Star Trek fan, so I felt like I had to mention it. If only for you, Desi Doyen, you're welcome.
0: I appreciate that. Thank you very much. I thought it was, uh, you know, I I also share your disdain for the way that uh, Jeff Bezos has hoovered up pretty much all the money (laughs) in the planet and uh, is preventing his own workers from organizing in their warehouses under, you know, for better working conditions. Mm -hmm. But in this particular case, it is uh, a rather... Their sweet and touching mix, as you say, of science fiction meeting science reality. Yeah, so that I, was kind of cool, I, I have guess to admit. so.
1: Sp- uh, spending tons of money to go to, to space as NASA and JPL does and so forth, that's one thing. We learned all kinds of science from that.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, but there, Bezos no... couldn't even do this without what NASA has already done, courtesy of the U.S. taxpayers. So. Well,
1: of course. But the, and, and there's no science here. I mean, how how much money could Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, be giving instead instead of this giving to save the planet? instead of sending up old TV stars to look at it in three minutes of, of weightlessness. Am I too much of a curmudgeon today?
0: <laughs> no, I think you're just the exact right amount of curmudgeon okay, today.
1: Okay. He, you want, here's what he had to say, by the way. When it comes to science, here's what, uh, you know, some people are saying, well... Uh, maybe this will be helpful for climate change because he spoke about the atmosphere.
0: And the fragility of the planet. Well, yeah,
1: whatever, go ahead play oh, it. Oh, it's
2: one thing to say, oh, the sky and the thing and the fragile. Thing. It's all true. But what is unknown, I'll tell you to do it, is there's this pillow. There's this soft blue. Look at the beauty of that color. And it's so thin. And you're through it in an instant and you're into black and you're into, uh, you know, it's uh, it's mysterious and galaxies and things. But what you see is black and what you see down there is light and that's the difference. And not to have this, what you have given me is the most profound experience I can imagine. I'm so Filled with emotion about what just happened. I I just, it's extraordinary.
1: So there you go.
0: Yeah, well, I am happy for William Shatner, Uh who, by the way, traveled for free. Yeah. he got yeah, a free ride yeah. on that one yeah. um, I hope that he will use this newfound perspective to help <laughs> raise awareness among people of climate change and the fragility of our tiny thin atmosphere that is the only thing that protects us from the vacuum of space we are the oasis of the universe and I don't know that people understand that so hopefully something good can come of this huge waste of money uh, on this joy ride for a TV star um, that it can help people understand that and then take action in their own lives to make us do stuff to protect it.
1: So you have squeezed something (laughs) worthwhile out of this uh, adventure. Yes, I have.
0: uh,
1: And you're right. He got to go for free as a gift uh, from Jeff Bezos, uh, whose workers are constantly fighting for, you know, decent working conditions.
0: The right to go to the bathroom and have a break. Yes, those are problems that Jeff Bezos has made sure continue. Yeah. So,
1: all right, so there's your little gift. We got to talk about your little (laughs) Star Trek show and, and that. And Because I'm still thinking, frankly, about these essential workers, the grunts who are trying to make a paycheck rather than the guy who has so much money, Bezos in this case, that the only thing he can think to do is, you know, build spaceships and go to space. So... Let's talk about the essential workers now that the fun is over, Dennis. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the number of people quitting their jobs has now surged to record highs. Oh, don't give me any ideas. Uh, Anyway, it's pushed by a uh, combination of factors that include Americans sensing ample opportunity, better pay, and better working conditions elsewhere. Some 4.3 million people quit jobs in August. Almost 3% of the workforce... Just quit last month, according to new data released this week by the Labor Department. Those numbers are up from the previous record of people quitting uh, or losing their jobs set in April. The phenomenon is being driven in part by workers who are less willing to endure inconvenient hours and poor compensation. According to The Washington Post, they are quitting instead to find better opportunities. According to the report, there were a near record 10, uh, about 10 and a half million job openings in the country at the end of August. This gives workers enormous leverage as they look for a better fit. Normally, churn in the labor market reflects workers feeling more confident. In the economy, willing to risk the security of their current job for a new opportunity. But the scale of these new changes and the larger economic transition they signal has added an element of unpredictability. Workers and employers are reassessing their approaches amid a continually evolving public health threat. Get to that more in a moment. Many businesses say they're finding this new dynamic uh, challenging as they struggle to retain employees. Some businesses have found success by increasing pay and compensation. Right. What an idea. But here's what caught my eye. The, The bulk of the rapid changes, according to the Labor Department data, are in restaurants, bars, hotels, retail. The pandemic Has obviously been extremely disruptive to the labor market, though the pressures have changed over the past 18 months. In March and April of 2020, more than 20 million workers lost their jobs. At one point, more than 1 million workers were being laid off each and every day because companies were forced to shutter Uh, Because of the crashing economy from covid, the jobless rate has improved since the spring of 2020. But according to Washington Post, leverage has shifted from employers to employees as the pandemic helped draw attention to the plight of low wage workers. Well, I hope it has including health concerns for those workers amid the rise of the coronavirus's Delta variant. Zip Recruiters data shows that uh, workers are increasingly looking to change industries from sectors such as retail and hospitality to others where workers uh, where work is more likely to be able to be done remotely such as customer service, for example, some 20 percent say they are now looking for remote work options because of the pandemic. Now, citing this uh, same information, the same statistics from the Labor Department, TPM's Nicole LaFond observes that the workforce shortage is primarily attached to the burnout that COVID-19 placed and continues to place on essential workers who have determined in recent months that the challenges and low wages in the restaurant and service industry where workers are often forced to be face to face with customers from the public who may not be uh, inclined to wear masks, much less be vaccinated, are now outweighing the drive for a steady paycheck. They would rather quit than deal with this and deal with these people who are you know, threatening their health and their life and the health and life of their families. Axios also reported on the phenomenon today, offering this take, which is uh, really to the point that I'm getting at here. The the pace of the economic recovery hinges in part on workers returning to jobs that involve dealing with an unpredictable public. But many of those workers say increasingly combative customers, angry about everything from long wait times to mask mandates, have just prompted them to quit. Aggressive and violent clashes between customers and service workers over COVID safety protocol calls over the past two years have led to prison sentences and fines and even deaths. Many workers say they are simply no longer willing to put up with the abuse. On the other hand, in some cases, uh, their employers are often taking their side, Rather than the customers, even in industries that have long deferred to customers, businesses have shut down in support of their employees. That's good. Some industries, well, not good that they've had to shut down, but good that uh, they're finally supporting their employers. Yeah. Yeah. Some industries have provided self-defense classes and banded together on public awareness campaigns. though so a job that forces you to have to take self-defense classes does not sound like a wonderful experience to me. Restaurants and bars are still about one million jobs short of pandemic level, with more than two thirds of restaurant workers saying customer behavior is a factor in the industry's labor shortage. Yeah. That Who would want to work with these people, uh, you know, at, at bars and restaurants Look, at this point? Look, working with
0: the public was already not an easy job, just, you know, newsflash there. But it's gotten even worse. Something about the pandemic has just broken a certain segment of America.
1: Melissa Swift, U.S. transformation leader at Mercer, a, cons- a business consulting firm, says because con- consumers were so used to a, quote, fric- frictionless economy. Before the pandemic, apparently there was no tolerance for any slowdowns in service as businesses opened back up. Uh, Class, she says, also comes into play. Technology has insulated the upper classes from the physical labor that enables their lifestyle. A former bartender, for example, from West Virginia told Axios, quote, I was extremely lucky to work in a place where the employer Treated the employees well and everyone made excellent money. She said it was customers who made her finally quit. What really hurts, she noted, was that, uh, quote, the same people whining about people on unemployment were the same people who would come in and treat the people actually working like crap. Casey Carville, who runs a group of nonprofit veterinary uh, veterinary clinics in Texas, said, quote, as an essential business, we continue to work tirelessly through the entire pandemic. All we ask for in return is empathy, courtesy and understanding. Well, that would be nice This trend of increasingly unpleasant, sometimes violent customers is changing the balance of power. Uh, Swift, the uh, business consulting uh, person at the business consulting firm, said we've unnaturally privileged the consumer over the employee for a while now. We're seeing a shift away from customer obsession to a more balanced view of the world. Organizations have been forced to confront the fact that unhappy employees cannot provide the customer experience that they are targeting, she added. Good. I hope they are noticing that. If consumer behavior doesn't improve, more workers may leave, says Axios, putting the workers who stay uh, in their jobs at even more risk of abuse and placing even greater challenges on businesses to operate. Workers fear, however, uh, I'm sorry, workers' fears, however, would likely abate if more Americans get vaccinated. And the risk of getting infected on the job, therefore, declines. That would also allow businesses and local governments to ease up on mask mandates that workers are often tasked with enforcing. And those same people who haven't gotten vaccinated oppose. They oppose those mask mandates. So, you know, the bulk of the people, it sounds like, who are complaining are the ones who are actually creating the problem in the first place because they won't wear a mask, they won't get vaccinated, et cetera. And then they're mad at the people who are struggling to have to deal with them and their rudeness while they are short-staffed and underpaid and everything else.
0: It's a vicious cycle of stupidity.
1: A vicious cycle of stupidity. That ought to be the name (laughs) of this program at this point. Uh, And of course, we have seen this uh, dynamic in play uh, in in recent weeks and months at all of these local school board meetings with increasingly hostile and threatening rhetoric against teachers and school district officials from these brain poisoned parents who are furious about the mask mandates that are meant to keep their children and them safe from a deadly disease. It's just it's it's insane. At the same time, we've we've seen and heard much less uh, from college and university systems where professors and other faculty are now finding themselves uh, really at the whim of Trumpy governors uh, if they happen to be unlucky enough to work in a red state. These Trumpy governors who are either banning uh, mask and or vaccine requirements statewide or Uh, Boards of regents who run the universities who are refusing to answer to the demands of their own faculty who are requesting that they be protected in their own classrooms. So with so many job openings in retail businesses, you know, it's not all that difficult to to sort of quit one bartender job at one place where the employer does not look out for their employees and find another where the business owner is willing to. Uh, you know, to, to take care of the employees. It is not quite so easy, however, for professors at colleges and universities to move from one job to another job. And now some of them, largely in states where mask and vaccine requirements are being barred, some of these folks are now speaking out and they are taking matters into their own hands in their own classrooms where they can. Let's take a quick break here. We'll be joined uh, by a uh, a state president of uh, the American Association of University Professors to discuss what higher learning instructors are now facing, what they're contending with, uh, even as it doesn't receive quite as much coverage as those angry parents who are fighting against public health mandates at local school district meetings or against uh, TV stars being shot into space. (laughs) Dr. Matthew Bodie joins me next on the Bradcast to talk about all of this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is supporting you and the things that you care about. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. Right now, as much as ever, if you choose to support us, you can do it really easily, safely and quickly via brandblog.com slash donate. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Yes, I'm going, going back to Georgia I am Where my
0: memories uh, trace
1: We always are. Is, is are. it is it just me, or are <laughs> we always going back to Georgia, <laughs> Desi Doyen? <laughs> There's a
0: lot happening in Georgia. Yeah, there
1: is, because this time we're going back to Georgia. It's actually not about elections for a uh, happy change. It's about COVID, so I guess not so happy. Let's start here. On yesterday's broadcast, we discussed, among other things, the new mandate by Texas's Republican governor, Greg Abbott, banning vaccine requirements for any entity in the state, including private businesses who may not, under Abbott's order, require either customers or employees To be vaccinated or be regularly tested, as President Joe Biden's federal order requires for businesses employing more than 100 people, at least. We also noted, of course, that Texas is not the only state where Republican authorities are using their powers to prevent vaccination and and even mask uh, masking requirements, theoretically, in the name of freedom. Even while denying businesses and local school boards as well as universities and colleges the freedom to set their own public health policies for their employees and customers and students and faculty. Montana has passed a bill banning vaccination requirements by employers. Florida has also banned businesses from requiring proof of vaccination this year. Its governor, Ron DeSantis, has threatened school districts with fines for even requiring masks inside the state's public school system. As the political posturing by Trumpy governors and elected officials across the country continues to result in unabated infections and unnecessary deaths, faculty at state-run universities and colleges are expressing their frustration and fears for themselves and their students and their families. As reported this week by Politico, Kirsten Catherine Ahuero, a 20-year-old Texas A&M student from Fort Worth, died on September 8 from complications related to COVID-19, 20 years old. A few days later, students gathered on campus to read her obituary out loud. She studied biomedical science. She volunteered for the National Suicide Hotline. She aspired to be a psychiatric nurse and she left behind parents, siblings, grandparents, and great-grandparents. Then, students at the school rallied for stricter protections against COVID-19 on a campus where vaccines are optional and students rarely wear masks in classes. Their protest is one of many now taking place on campuses across the country as the political fault line over COVID protocols that has cleaved red and blue states extends to Colleges and universities, with some enacting strict virus protections more in line with CDC guidance and others remaining lax. Thousands of students and educators are pleading with college, state and federal leaders for tighter COVID-19 safety measures on campus in response to campus deaths, widespread outbreaks and growing fears of both in Texas. Their answer appears to have come from Governor Abbott's mandate this week, banning vaccine requirements of any kind anywhere in Texas. In Mississippi, according to Politico, the State Board of Higher Education said in August that colleges could mandate COVID-19 vaccines, though none took the opportunity at the time. Universities maintained they did not have the authority for a requirement. Student and faculty continued to push university leaders there for a mandate. Mississippi State University's Faculty Senate voted last month to support requiring the vaccine, as did the student and faculty senates at the University of Mississippi. That should have been encouraging, given that the State Board of Higher Education had already decided that state universities indeed could do so if they wished, But soon after those votes were taken, the same state board of higher education that voted uh, to allow such mandates changed their mind. They voted to ban colleges from requiring the covid-19 vaccine, a reversal of its policy from just one month before. None of the board members, I should note, were made available to Politico to explain that reversal. Colleges in states like California, Maryland and Virginia, on the other hand, have mandated the vaccine, sometimes threatening to take Internet access or student housing from the unvaccinated and occasionally booting them from the rolls altogether. But other states like Texas and Mississippi and Florida, Tennessee and Georgia have outlawed or discouraged vaccine mandates or universal mask wearing both on and off campus. Pleas from campuses for more protections continue to escalate as the semester now grinds on, forcing educators and students to amp up their calls for action. In September, eight chapters of the American Association of University Professors urged Congress to step in, saying they were getting no traction, no traction at all with state and university leaders. The good luck winning traction among Republicans in Congress, hoping to curry favor with Donald Trump in the Senate to good luck getting them to take any action at all on this issue. Some professors in Georgia are now simply refusing to teach under lax COVID-19 rules. Others are pleading with their school administrators to even allow mask mandates, never mind vaccines. Others are now saying they will defy the anti-masking mandates instituted by the University System of Georgia Late last month, more than 50 faculty members at the University of Georgia, many with expertise in the study of infectious diseases, signed a faculty statement declaring, In order to protect our students, staff and faculty colleagues, we will wear masks and will require all of our students and staff to wear masks in our classrooms and laboratories until local community transmission rates improve. Despite the ban on mask mandates and the University System of Georgia policy to punish and potentially fire any faculty taking this action. American Association of University Professors President Irene Mulvey said in a recent interview, quote, We're just at a level of frustration that I've never seen before. Everyone's fighting the same battle, and that is for common sense rules to end the pandemic and keep people safe. Adding that she has not seen a similar unified uprising of professors across the country since McCarthyism's threat to academic freedom back in the 1950s. We're just trying to find ways to shout into the wind at this point, said Dr. Matthew Bodie, the president of Georgia's American Association of University Professors Conference. He's also a professor at the University of North Georgia. The only lever we had was public attention and mass movement, he said. Well, I can relate. And whenever I hear a group of folks trying to find ways to shout into the wind, to raise awareness of their righteous cause, particularly one that includes the threat of sickness and death to them and their families. Well, that catches our attention here on the broadcast. Joining us now to shout a bit louder into the wind, perhaps, is Dr. Matthew Bode from the University of North Georgia in Gainesville, where he teaches rhetoric and composition while also serving as president of the Georgia State Chapter of the AAUP a national organization exclusively representing the interests of all college and university faculty members. Professor Bodie, welcome to the broadcast, sir.
2: I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: So uh, help me understand this uh, math, if you will, of what's going on right now in Georgia at its university system, uh, where faculty members are arguably committing an act of defiance, uh, some of them, never mind uh, vaccine requirements they're, they're simply requiring masks in their own classrooms where is the blockade for this is this at the university level in Georgia is this due to uh, anti-masking mandates from the governor what, what's the actual problem here with these professors doing this
2: the university system is overseen by the Board of Regents, which is a 19-member board mm-hmm. uh, that is uh, appointed by a series of governors. And they generally follow the governor's wishes in terms of policies. They bucked the governor. That is, they, they uh, pushed the, him aside last year and gave us a mask mandate when the governor, Brian Kemp, said he did not want any mask mandate. Mm-hmm. But then uh, in June, when cases started to go down, they said, well, we're not going to have one. Uh, then Delta came, and we desperately needed one, and they refused to have one because they weren't going to, um, you know, push aside the governor a second time, especially in terms of how heated it has gotten. So the the lack of mandate comes from the Board of Regents, but they are very connected to the governor, who, of course, has banned uh, mass mm-hmm.
1: uh,
2: or banned mass mandates uh, around the state.
1: And and again, the, the Board of Regents is appointed by uh, by who?
2: The governor, right. So there are nineteen members and they are on stages of seven years or so, but the current governor I think is uh appointed seven or eight. So he has a lot of friends on it already. Um, and he is generally working with them to get what he wants done.
1: And and what are the potential penalties then for these uh, faculty members who wrote this letter? About fifty of them I mentioned uh, who said we're going to do this. We're going to make this a requirement in our classrooms anyway. What what are they actually facing? And have any of them uh, actually been punished so far for doing so?
2: Well, in theory, yes, there could be a series of levels of discipline all the way up to. Um, you know, ending of employment, I, I doubt that will happen, uh, a written letter, reprimand, you know. Mm-hmm. These 50 professors at the University of Georgia, of course, are banding together so that not one individual can be punished, or you mm-hmm. have to select one to do so. And I, honestly, I, I have not heard of any punishments so far uh, mm-hmm. with these mass mandates, and I, I, honestly, I don't expect any, because... I don't think the university system nor the University of Georgia, where these professors work, want to draw more attention to the deplorable policies they have in place, and that would just add to the fire. Uh, So if a few more students are wearing masks in their class, I I think they're privately happy with that, but I, I, I don't think they're going to do anything to them
1: you know as a, uh, a rhetoric and a composition expert uh, dr bodie are you struck as i am by these uh, by these claims from the right in opposition to quote mandates mandates of any sort from uh, governmental bodies even as they seem to support what appear to me to be mandates that schools and and even private businesses may not require masking or vaccination for students employees or customers it 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 all kind of feels a bit orwellian to me i don't know you're the expert but aren't these mandates as well uh coming from uh government governmental bodies essentially oh
2: yes uh the groups on the right and politicians on the right are using words uh to get what they want and so they will use words in opposite of their intended meaning or their usual meaning to get what they want. They mm-hmm. don't like mandates, but they'll offer ma- or push mandates on a- in another way. It mm-hmm. is truly cognitive dissonance. And it just shows the ways in which this is not driven by science. It's not driven by common sense. It's not even driven by any type of logic that I can follow, because if you speak to these people, they just change in any direction that is against what you're saying. <laughs> um, so as a rhetoric teacher... I'm teaching a class currently on misinformation, and I'm doing that for this reason. It's just really difficult to get beyond uh, the cognitive dissonance. And I'm trying to teach people not just to recognize it, but to find rhetorical ways to persuade people who seem not want to be persuaded.
1: Thank you. Good. Uh, if you find the opportunity in class, uh, if the idea of uh, Donald Trump trying to overthrow or reverse the election of 2020 comes up, please let your students know he wasn't trying to overthrow or reverse the results. He was trying to steal it. Just on a... uh yes, two retor- is the word. I think you're
2: looking for that, Thank yeah. you
1: there. Uh, anyway, uh, back to the topic uh, at issue. I, I uh, you, you mentioned in Politico, you're, you're sort of shouting into the wind at this point, and I don't know if that's on... Uh, on behalf of the American Association of University Professors, where you're the president of the Georgia chapter, uh, if it's on uh, you know on behalf of uh, faculty members uh, at the University System of Georgia, or if it's on your own behalf. But since you're shouting, what are you shouting specifically for, and who would be the official body to, respo- to respond to those shouts um, for for the faculty members that you represent?
2: Well, I mean, we were literally out on the quad in our college campuses shouting, you know, mask mandate now. We want mass. Uh So we were shouting to the public, to the students, to anyone that would listen. But the people, the decision makers uh, in this state at higher education are the Board of Regents in the university system of Georgia. And they have a chancellor, and we're searching for a chancellor if you nobody wants the job. But we, yeah, we were shouting to those decision makers mm-hmm. who tell us again and again that they want to protect students, they want to protect faculty, and they're following their science. But a mask mandate would clearly show that they're doing that, and they refuse to do that.
1: Which, you know, the idea that here we are uh, more than a year and a half into this thing, uh, almost two years now, actually, uh, and that the fight is not about a vaccine mandate, but simply about a mask mandate. I, uh, I, I note uh, that the, the letter from those uh, University of Georgia professors, many of whom are scientists, uh, including those with expertise in infectious diseases, uh, who feel it necessary to require masking in their classes. Are, are, are you doing the same in yours?
2: No, I'm, I strangely, either I don't have the courage that they do, or I'm just a, a rule follower. I'm, I'm using my rhetorical skills to try to persuade students to wear masks, and at this point, I'm about 50% of success. Other um, <laughs> people who are not in the biological sciences, college of education professors, are using levers of morality. Hey, if you want to be a teacher, you got to be able to lead. There are other ways people are doing it. Uh, but no, I'm I'm not forcing a mandate uh, on my students at this moment. I'm just trying to use the the best mm-hmm. words, Well,
1: we, You know, we have seen at the local level around the country, we've seen school district board meetings. Uh, I'm sure you've seen it. You know, turn quite heated and and even violent with with uh, you know board members and faculty uh, receiving death threats, et cetera. Has there been a, a similar sort of escalation of a, a aggressive and hostile rhetoric at the university and college level from those who uh, oppose public safety requirements there
2: i haven't seen it at the university and college level mm-hmm. um, mainly because you know colleges are different you know, It's open campus and students are coming and going and and there isn't a, a weekly if you will monthly school board meeting that you can go to but Certainly, uh, school boards in our state have been targeted. Uh, there's a school board watch list out there by Turning Point USA. I'm on one of their watch lists, mm. and they love watch lists. <laughs> um, so they're bringing their attention to school boards that they don't like. There's been several parents uh, both protesting for masks and vaccines and against uh, masks and vaccines at school board at the university level. Because the board of reasons only meet monthly and they and they meet uh, in public very uh, rarely, it's kind of hard to protest. But we tried uh this week on another issue to protest and and they didn't listen to us either. So the college and university protests are more online and twitter and and me getting trolled on that. Uh so that's where that is at. <laughs>
1: uh well, who isn't getting trolled on twitter? I guess you're not doing your job if you're not at this point. Uh beyond uh and I want to talk about that other issue by the way if we ha- if we have a moment here. Uh beyond the, the defiance though from uh, you know some of these professors in these letters uh, you know, and professors on their own requiring masking in in classes. Has there been any talk among the AAUP, the American Association of University Professors, uh, which is a, a union of sorts? Uh, As there has there been any talk of potential collective group efforts, uh, walkouts, strikes, et cetera, to demand, frankly, safe working conditions where you are. Required to show up every day for classes. It seems like you guys have uh, a lot of power. You got a lot of members in the uh, AAUP. Has that come up as an issue, at least in the states like yours, where professors are barred from, you know, keeping their students and themselves and their families safe?
2: Well, uh, in our in our state, of course, the collective bargaining is barred by state law, so we're, we don't have the unionized <laughs> oh. power of that. Oh, there's that. But yeah, yes, but uh, we we did debate that when we were debating how to proceed with this week long, uh, you know, protest that we had, and there was really some voices on both sides to do a lot of those things, and we came down to it that is, we didn't want to punish our students for the deplorable actions of our university administration. Mm. Uh, that is we didn't want to walk out, we didn't want to stop class. And I told uh, my folks who uh, participated in the protest, don't cancel your class, don't move your class outside. You uh, may invite your students, but you're not canceling class because we didn't want to punish our students. And we didn't want to add to the punishment they're getting with Mm. with the lack of mass. So while we are organized and we're trying to uh, do a mass movement, no, we didn't do walkouts and we're not going to strike because that's just not a tool available uh, to us. But what we're trying to do is keep um, public pressure. Uh, I call it a public shaming of our university leaders, and hopefully mm-hmm. they respond. So far, sadly, they have not.
1: Uh, speaking of responding, have you heard back from Congress? Since I know the uh, AAUP sent a letter to uh, Congress saying, "Hey, please help us," have you have you received any response there yet? Yeah, I've
2: written, uh, met with several uh, Georgia representatives. Uh, both democrat and republican mm-hmm. uh and the democrats have taken upon themselves to do some more work they've contacted the federal department of education to see if we can get colleges and universities under Biden's federal vaccine mandate and mm. they think there's a route to do that mm-hmm. i don't think it has to go through congress uh in terms of your introduction i think it's a regulatory thing ah. and so we're we're anticipating uh, something happening with that, you know. We're we're hoping for that. I'm not suggesting I know what's mm-hmm. going to happen, uh, but <laughs> on the on two days after we we you know had the Democrats mm-hmm. uh, say that the Georgia House GOP caucus signed a letter uh, to the Department of Education saying we're against vaccine mandates. And oddly, one of those congressmen who signed the letter called me today and wanted to talk about the vaccine mandate. And I go, "Did you sign the letter?" And he goes, well you still talk about it." I'm like, "Okay, um, wow. so." What I'm getting at is, yes, it is certainly a divided partisan issue, and I'm hoping it doesn't have to go through Congress to get us a vaccine mandate. Uh, I'm hoping they can do it through the regulatory executive order uh, that President Biden signed.
1: I hope so, too. Uh, I know that uh, you've been uh, keeping your own uh, Google document, uh, Matthew Bodie, uh, tracking infections at the University of Georgia system. Uh, looks like going back to... Uh, December of last year, infections uh, at the at, uh, at the University of Georgia system, a Georgia campus covid count. Uh, are those numbers? Uh, what are you learning from that? Are they at least trending down in recent months? What have you discovered tracking the information going back uh, to December of last year there?
2: Well, I mean, yeah, it goes back to the beginning of the pandemic. And what I found, uh, of course, is that, yes, at the beginning of each semester, there's a large spike, uh, both in last August, last January, and, and in this August. And, and so we knew that was coming this August. We will, ha- will we have one in January? I don't know. There's more people getting vaccinated. But the spikes have, have always occurred and cases have gone down, you know, week five or six into the semester, and we're experiencing that now. But the idea that somehow, as the university system has said, it's not being transmitted in classrooms, and that's what they're happy with. I'm like, it's being transmitted everywhere else. (laughs) And they're going on and off campus, and they're going back home, and they're going into their dorms. Uh, Georgia Tech used to tell us which building the cases were infected in, so we knew it it was a sorority house or we knew it was a dormitory. Now they don't do that. But what what I'm getting at is, the, the trends are it's all over campus. It's, it doesn't matter if it's in classrooms or uh-huh. not. Uh, so lack of math, lack of social distancing, just lack of um, awareness of, of the issue. And, of course, the vaccine rates in Georgia are terribly low, especially for the typical college student age. I think they're the lowest in the age range. Mm-hmm. So, and that's not going up anytime soon. So we desperately need uh, uh, vaccine mandates like they have at the private schools in Mm -hmm. Georgia that are suffering, or not suffering, but having less cases than we do. Oh,
1: Brian Kemp has not yet uh, issued a mandate that uh, private schools may not require vaccines?
2: Well, I don't know if you want to piss off Emory because they're the big science people, but hey, you can try.
1: Okay. Uh, does uh, by the way, you know, you're keeping this Google document. You're a, 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 a associate professor of rhetoric and composition. Does the universe, and you're tracking the infection rate at the University of Georgia system? Doesn't UGS track this on its own? <laughs>
2: no. Uh, they said that at the beginning of the pandemic that their statewide, their university system offices would not be tracking it, and they were leaving it up to individual schools to track it, and that has become a wild west of how reports get done and where they're posted and how they're posted, and I certainly may be the only person in the state tracking a statewide COVID count that, I, you know, that I'm aware of. And so that's just the sad state of public health here in Georgia, led by a governor who won't take serious steps to address uh the pandemic in the last 18 months
1: that is extraordinary uh lastly and this is sort of a separate outrage and and i know you got to get going shortly but i i i saw this on your twitter feed i wasn't aware that this was coming up today but apparently it has i noticed you've been tweeting out today that as of today the the university system of georgia the same system we're talking about here governed by the board of regents Uh, many of whom are appointed by Governor Brian Kemp, has apparently ended, if I understand this correctly, uh, ended the tenure system at Georgia's public universities. Do I understand that correctly? And if so, what exactly does that mean now for both uh, previously tenured and non-tenured professors in in your system?
2: What we have now is tenure in name only. So they didn't delete the word from all the policies. They erased the due process protections for a particular group of professors, ending, if you will, tenure protections for them. Mm. So the dominoes can certainly fall after that to the rest of us. Uh, But it is, yes, the death of tenure and due process in Georgia, and tenure and its sister academic freedom are the bedrock principles to higher education, and Georgia just dynamited those things today. Um, and so the AEP, the national group, is working toward adding the university system of Georgia to their censure list. They don't usually censure systems, but this is a system wide policy that they passed today. And they passed it without uh, few changes at all. And there was a large protest outside the meeting, and there's been protests for weeks uh, in terms of emails. Uh, and they refused to listen to us. So it, it's a dark day here in Georgia higher education. It's been a dark weeks or months for now. Um, and this is just a, a, a huge gut punch to those of us who've been fighting for COVID regulations um, and doing it now is just, um, it's really just uh, tragic.
1: Well, uh, it is indeed, and I'll I'll tell you, I do appreciate folks like yourself uh, who are speaking up. Uh, Even if you're shouting into the wind, uh, you caught our attention, so hopefully we can help uh, get the word out a little broader. We actually cover Georgia quite a bit on this program. We're a national program, but we cover Georgia quite a bit because, guess what, we cover elections very, very closely, and for some reason... We've had our eyes on Georgia now for many, many years because of it. Well, I, but, I, you know, I thank you, uh, uh, Dr. Bodie, for uh, speaking out, for trying to get folks' attention. I hope you can actually push. I know you don't want to punish the students, um, but, you know, even uh, a, a one-day walkout, you know, might get some attention to your cause um, because it's a righteous one, as I said, and it's uh, to protect the health of uh, students, yourselves, your family, and um It's dark and outrageous that you even have to go through this. So uh, thank you for doing it. Dr. Matthew Bodie of the University of North Georgia in Gainesville. Uh, He's also president of the Georgia State Chapter of the American Association of University Professors. You can uh, troll him on the Twitters if you like. He is Matthew Bodie. That's spelled B-O-E-D-Y. Dr. Bodie, greatly appreciate you joining us today on the broadcast, sir.
2: You're welcome. Talk to you later.
1: Okay, quick break, and Des, looks like there's some breaking news that I think you're going to like. Oh, good. Uh, that's been coming in as I've been speaking with the professor there. Uh, that's straight ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman.
0: You're listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener-supported, thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com donate.
1: Yes, maybe so. (laughs) Hopefully so. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. We've been covering, of course, uh, the oil spill off the coast of Orange County down here in Southern California. uh, Quite a lot over the past week or so since that spill. But here is a much better news story about energy and our coastline. That is just breaking late today. The Biden administration announced on Wednesday a plan to develop large-scale wind farms, Des. I know. Along nearly the entire coastline of the United States. The first long-term strategy from the government to produce electricity from offshore turbines. Speaking at a wind power industry conference in Boston, Interior Secretary Deb Holland said her agency will begin to identify, demarcate, and hope to eventually lease federal waters in the Gulf of Mexico, Gulf of Maine, off the coasts of the Mid Atlantic states, North Carolina, South Carolina, California, and Oregon to wind power developers by 2025. The announcement came months after the Biden administration approved the nation's first commercial offshore wind farm off the coast of Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts and began reviewing a dozen other potential offshore wind projects along the East Coast. On the West Coast, the administration has approved opening up two areas off the shores of Central and Northern California, Oh, good. Not down here in Southern California. It's an eyesore uh, for a commercial wind power development. Taken all together, the actions represent the most forceful push ever by the federal government to promote offshore wind development.
0: This is a huge deal and a wonderful deal because remember when it comes to offshore wind, there is zero danger of an oil spill of any kind.
1: We won't have any wind spills that no we have to worry about. No at
0: all. And the other part is that this will generate a Bazillion jobs. Okay, I don't know how many exactly. Bazillion. A bazillion. It says here in the
1: New York Times, a bazillion. a bazillion, two and a half bazillion.
0: Because, for example, New Jersey is already developing new manufacturing uh, plants for wind turbines. They're bringing over European firms that are experienced in offshore wind, because of course the U.S. has failed to develop its own offshore wind. We have fallen behind,
1: so we've now got to go to foreigners exactly. to build wind off our coast. We
0: have fallen that far behind. However, New Jersey Jersey, for example, has started to create what is basically a manufacturing hub for the northeastern offshore wind industry. So uh, following that model, that means that there will also be new manufacturing hubs for all of these states when they do have these uh, these uh, uh, fields determined by the Interior Department. So that will generate jobs, and that will generate and sort of revive U.S. manufacturing and U.S. industrial policy, which we haven't had in decades.
1: Yeah, maybe, but <laughs> I heard over the past few years uh, that, you know, when the wind isn't blowing, you can't watch TV. <laughs> the power goes out. Is that is that true?
0: That is that is not true, surprisingly. actually, Because I those- heard it
1: over and over again. And over again for the past five years.
0: I know you have, and that is so, so not true. Darling, I'd like to watch
1: TV tonight, (laughs) but... Oh, darn, the wind stopped blowing, so we can't watch TV.
0: Hopefully, it will also spur an increase uh, in battery storage technology because Ah. uh, that is already happening right now in California. California just expanded its world's largest battery farm that was then surpassed by battery farms in other countries, and California has now expanded its own. uh, So it's now, again, the world's largest battery farm. So So
1: you mean to say that when the wind is not blowing, And when we want to watch TV at night, darling, we can do so because the wind that has been blowing those uh, turbines all day is stored in batteries that works even when the wind is not blowing.
0: Exactly. That's how that works.
1: Someone should apply that to uh, solar power because I understand at night, <laughs> no, you know, there's no sun, so we can't watch TV at night or whatever that yeah, is. Yeah.
0: So the developing battery storage industry is also booming in the United States.
1: And what about all those birds? I understand that (laughs) all the birds are going to die from all the wind farms.
0: Well, if you actually look at the U.S. Geological Survey's studies on what kills birds, it turns out that buildings, glass buildings and house cats, and the oil and gas industry, surprisingly, are the biggest killers of birds by orders of magnitude larger than wind turbines. Really? That's so
1: strange because I don't recall Donald Trump over the past five years when he we talk about how darling he couldn't watch TV and how there was just so many birds under those uh, wind turbines I don't remember him mentioning that uh, the oil and gas companies kill the birds.
0: Yeah well Donald Trump is an idiot. What?
1: I had no idea. Uh, The uh, Dan Reicher, Reicher, I don't know, who uh, served as assistant secretary at the Department of Energy in the Clinton administration, he now advises Magellan Wind, which develops uh, projects with offshore floating turbines, says, quote, this is a very big, big deal. This is a signal like we've never had before in the United States about where we can go with offshore wind. That said, as they have in response to other offshore wind farms, commercial fishing groups and coastal landowners will likely try to stop the projects. And it should be noted, since we referred to Donald Trump and his
0: nonsense about
1: uh, wind power, the reason he hates wind power is because he's under the impression that it's going to ruin the view from some of his golf courses, these offshore uh, uh, turbines. Right. That's all it's about. That's it's all, all it's about. his
0: own personal benefit. That's all it's about. And it's important to note that, yes, siting of wind farms is mm-hmm. extremely important. And the Interior Department is already working with different stakeholders in these all of these groups to make sure that we protect wildlife as much as possible. But I would not equate commercial fishing operations with wealthy landowners who don't want to have the view marred. They can work with commercial fishing operations. The landowners, you know, who cares what they think?
1: Or we could just shoot those rich people into space and not <laughs> bring them back. Uh, yeah, so uh, there, there are. It's there's expected to be uh, challenges uh, to the projects from the uh, commercial fishing groups, the coastal landowners in the Gulf of Mexico. When this is where oil and gas exploration is a major part of the economy, fossil fuel companies. Could fight the development of wind energy as a threat to not only their local operations, but their entire business model. I can't wait to see them complaining about these ugly uh, wind turbines <laughs> off the shore. And because you, you know they're going to be funding uh, 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 astroturf, AstroTurf groups
0: to sue to stop this. Exactly. Yes, under
1: all kinds of nonsense. Oh, it's going to mar our view and everything else. Because that's what the fossil fuel industry does.
0: Yes, they use all the profits that they take from your pocket to prevent you from having any kind of chance at fighting climate change.
1: Yes. And
0: stopping air pollution that is caused by fossil fuels. To
1: kill the planet. Uh, So uh, we will continue to try to unkill it as the uh, Biden administration's pretty exciting announcement actually on Wednesday uh, uh, does. And we'll see. We'll see what happens next. I'm sure the heads are exploding over on Fox News. All right. we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to Dr. Matthew Bodie of the University of North Georgia and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or would just like to give it another listen, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That service, of course, made possible by listeners like you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, when I can stomach it, I am the Brad Blog. We'll see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.